0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 53. to the eyes on conservation podcast where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe i'm your host matt Podolski. today in the show we're discussing an issue that has been covered extensively by mainstream media over the past several weeks the armed occupation of Malheur national wildlife refuge in oregon by a group of right-wing extremists In the days after this troubling occupation began, the Audubon Society of Portland released a statement condemning the actions of this self-styled militia group. The statement also highlighted the conservation history of the refuge, pointing out some of the reasons why the area was set aside as a national wildlife refuge by President Teddy Roosevelt. The Audubon Society of Portland has a long relationship with Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. It was their founder, uh, William Finley, who personally met with Teddy Roosevelt to convince him of the importance of preserving this important bird habitat. More recently, however, our guest, Bob Salinger, who is the conservation director for the Audubon Society of Portland, played a central role in a unique collaborative process to establish a new set of management goals for Malheur Reserve. It is this collaborative consensus-building process that sets Malheur apart from other refuges across the country, and it makes the selection of this particular refuge by these armed militants particularly ironic. We are happy to welcome Bob Salinger from the Audubon Society of Portland uh, to the show to share his perspective on this troubling issue. Let's jump into the interview. All right, I am here with Bob Salinger, who is the Conservation Director for the Audubon Society of Portland. How are you doing, Bob?
1: Good. How are you today?
0: Fantastic. Thanks a lot for taking some time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today. Um, I want to start off with a little bit of history um, about the Audubon Society of Portland. Um, uh, Maybe you can tell me a little bit about uh, William Finley, who was the founding president of uh, your Audubon chapter.
1: Sure. Uh, Portland Audubon Society, then called Oregon Audubon, was founded in 1902 And uh, it was founded by uh, William Finley, who is a really great Northwest naturalist, uh, naturalist writer, uh, worked for the Fish and Game Department, um, sort of an all around uh, uh, naturalist and environmentalist. And it was founded in 1902, and it was founded really for a couple of purposes. One was to promote uh, the establishment of the first wildlife refuges in in the Western United States at Three Arch Rocks, Klamath and Malheur. And the other was to pass laws to protect birds, uh, which were being decimated by the plume trade. Uh, plume hunters would go out and kill massive numbers of water birds, particularly egrets and herons, uh, for their feathers that were then used uh, on ladies' hats as decorations. And William Finley and his friend Herman Bowman uh, went to these places Three Arch Rocks, Malheur, and Klamath, and took amazing photographs of the wildlife, of the habitat, of um, also dead birds uh, that were left on the ground and left in the water uh, by the plume trade, and tried to raise awareness of these incredible places and what was happening there. Uh, they, they turned these photographs into glass slides and actually hand-colored them, uh, and they sent them off to Teddy Roosevelt, who was president at that time. And uh, Roosevelt was interested. Roosevelt actually met with Finley. Uh, and in 1908, he declared uh, Malheur National Wildlife Refuge as uh, one of the first wildlife refuges in the western United States. Uh, he also established Klamath and Three Arch Rocks, too. Uh, so uh, a great deal of success in those, those early years of Oregon Audubon. Uh, right around that time, also, uh, Oregon passed a law protecting birds, the Oregon Model Bird Act. Uh, to reduce this carnage that was being caused by the plume trade. So within a matter of very few years, uh, the law was passed and the three wildlife refuges were established.
0: Yeah, really amazing. And I mean, William Finley is such a fascinating character in history, Um, you know, and I'm actually most familiar with him. Not from his work uh, with the Audubon Society of Portland, um, but as one of the very first researchers to document the breeding behavior of the California condor. So the first documentary that I produced, Scavenger Hunt, was about California condor recovery and the issue of lead poisoning in wildlife. Um, and so I, I learned a lot about um, William Finley uh, through that project and his involvement with California condor recovery, and you mentioned, you know, these really amazing photographs that he took um, in, at, at the sites of some of these, you know, what were to be future wildlife refuges. Um, and he was also, you know, uh, the first person to to take these really amazing photographs of California condors.
1: He was—he's one of the great naturalists of, of this this country, and uh, it's a shame he's not better known because his, his story is really phenomenal. What he accomplished was phenomenal, and he was also quite a character. You mentioned the California condor. Well, he rescued a young condor in a fire down in California and kept it. Uh, he wasn't able to release it back to the wild. And uh, he used to travel around with this California condor that he named the general. And there are these great early photographs of Audubon events with Finley there and all the Auduboners dressed up you know, in, in the uh, uh, dress of that time, which was fairly formal. They go out on these bird washing trips with, uh, in fairly formal attire, and they would have this condor traveling with them. <laughs> Um, you know, see so with pictures of like Audubon picnics and Audubon events with the uh, California condor hanging out with uh, the assembled burgers. One of my favorite uh, pictures that Finley took is a uh, picture of him and Herman Bowman uh, driving across the uh, high desert of Oregon to Malheur in this old jalopy, basically. And, uh, and the caption of that photo uh, that Finley wrote was um, traveling 2,000 miles across Oregon. In a modern prairie wagon, uh, this trip resulted in uh, the establishment of Malheur Nas- National Wildlife Reservation.
0: How was he made aware of the the existence of you know this area around Malheur Lake and you know uh, its importance to uh, to birds?
1: So again, he was a great naturalist, and um, uh, he and his compatriots compiled a lot of the first uh, bird lists, and uh, uh, for the state uh, wrote. Uh, some of the first books about uh, the birds of the state of Oregon. Um, He was well-published. So, you know, he traveled far and wide uh, in his various capacities, uh, because, as I mentioned, he wasn't just about Audubon. He also was uh, working for the state uh, fish and game agency and others. Um, So, you know, he was one of those people that really uh, uh, was out there on the landscape, uh, discovering, learning about uh, what was going on, uh, talking to locals, um, so I don't know what drew him initially to Mal here, but he was all over the place uh, in the western U.S., uh, raising awareness of, of these amazing uh, places and uh, this incredible wildlife.
0: What is so unique about this area? You know, what makes it a really special uh, r- or really important bird habitat?
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of the most important wildlife refuges in the United States. It's 187,000 uh, acres. Uh, And it's one of the crown jewels of the wildlife refuge system for a lot of reasons. um, Hundreds of thousands of waterfowl pass through Malheur on their migrations every year. Tens of thousands of shorebirds pass through Malheur. Uh, Over 300 different species of birds can be found there. For many, uh, a significant portion of their entire population uses Malheur. Uh, For example, uh, white-faced ibises, uh, this beautiful incredibly cool bird, 20% of the entire population in the world uses Malheur. At one time, it was an incredibly productive uh, place for waterfowl, between 100 and 180,000 waterfowl were hatched there every year. In in recent times, that's fallen off dramatically because Malheur Lake, which is really the heart of the refuge, this huge, very, very shallow lake uh, that's fed by rivers from the north and the south, has been decimated by invasive carp, which were introduced many places uh, in the United States. And what the carp do is they eat all the vegetation, they stir up the bottom of the lake, uh, create very black, murky water, um, and all the vegetation dies and all the food disappears. Um, So today, although Malheur was one time this incredibly productive uh, place for waterfowl, uh, less than 10,000 ducks are hatched on the lake now today. But one of the exciting things that's happening there is this incredible collaboration that's going on with the local community, conservation groups, uh, state, local, and federal agencies, uh, the Paiute tribe, uh, whose land this originally was. Uh, They are the original uh, first people of of Malheur. Uh, All these different groups have been involved in this monumental effort to restore Malheur Lake. Uh, And that's a story that really needs to be told but really just uh, an incredibly important place for uh, for our wild bird populations.
0: You mentioned this this really amazing collaborative effort um, that is going on to, to restore the refuge. I mean, let, let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, you say that this is the story that really does need to be told here. What efforts are being taken to uh, restore this habitat?
1: You know, it's interesting that the uh, self-styled, self-called militia chose Malheur because this is this is truly a conflicted landscape. You know, I don't want to understate that. There are many, many conflicts on this landscape and uh, we're involved in some of those. Um, but Malheur is actually a bright spot. It's a place where collaboration and consensus have taken hold. And that's what we really need to nurture and promote here. And so it's particularly sad that they chose Malheur to make this uh, unwise stand. But what has happened there is Every refuge in the United States was required to produce what they call a comprehensive conservation plan or CCP by 2013. And this plan basically is supposed to lay out a vision for where the refuge wants to go and strategies and priorities for getting there consistent with the initial with the original purpose of why that refuge was established. And every refuge in the United States was required to produce this this plan. Now, the way the Fish and Wildlife Service typically does this is they uh, scope comments from the public to get sort of a general sense of what the public cares about and what stakeholders care about. They go behind closed doors. They write a draft plan. It's probably 1,000-plus pages long. They put it out for public comment for 60 days. They get a bunch of comments back, and then they print a final plan and adopt it. Uh, And, you know, frankly, It's supposed to be an inclusive process, but usually it's not terribly, and and usually uh, the the refuge kind of knows what it wants to do before it begins, and that's what comes out at the end. Uh, Maybe it gets accepted. Maybe it gets challenged. uh, Maybe it sits on the shelf and gathers dust. But, you know, that's kind of the typical way these things happen. At Malheur, they did something very different. And a group of people got together, ranchers, county commissioner, uh, environmentalists, uh, and uh, some Refuge folks, and decided they wanted to take a different approach, that they saw an incredible opportunity in here to bring people together around this amazing place. And we were not involved at that time. I was not involved, so I don't want to take any credit here. Uh, these folks got together and uh, appealed to the Refuge and appealed to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to do something different and have a true collaborative consensus-building project process to develop the CCP. Now, that may not sound very radical, but it actually was. It's the only refuge in the country that adopted this approach. And people were very, very nervous. They thought it would fail. They thought these historic conflicts would rise up and overwhelm the process. Uh, They thought it would be very time-consuming. A lot of people were very, very skeptical that it was going to be worth the effort. Uh, And a friend of mine who was one of the people that uh, petitioned uh, for this approach uh, called me up and said, you know, you need to be involved. Audubon is such, has such such a long history with this place. I had just taken my current job with Audubon. I had a different job previously, and I thought, this is fantastic, because one of my priorities was reengaging with the refuge. Uh, so over the course of three years, this very large stakeholder group that included members of the local communi- community, ranchers, farmers, uh, uh, county commissioners, uh, the Soil and Water Conservation District, the, the Paiute Tribe, uh, met repeatedly, uh, often, Um, I I probably went out there, you know, several dozen times, uh, you know, between the meetings there and phone meetings and different types of uh, subcommittees and so on, uh, and really invested a tremendous amount. And it was very, very successful. What people expected to be a failure uh, wound up achieving a true consensus and establishing a real collaboration moving forward and arrived at a very different place in terms of priorities and strategies and I think anybody thought was going to be the case at the beginning. And I'm happy to describe what those are. Uh, but you know, I'm involved in a lot of different projects in Oregon. Uh, many of those are sort of called consensus or collaborative. Uh, many of them don't live up to that term. When I look at here though, I think this is uh, one of the most successful I've been involved in over the course of 25 years and absolutely one of the most important because first the ecological. Uh, impacts it could have, the tremendous ecological impacts it could have. And second, because on this highly conflicted landscape, this is an opportunity to really foster relationships and collaboration and, uh, you know, find a way forward. Uh, So it's a very, very exciting thing.
0: At this point, I'm guessing that just about everyone is aware of uh, what's going on in Malheur National Refuge right now, um, that this this radical group of Self-styled militiamen have, uh, you know, decided to occupy this building and, um, you know, released a series of demands, uh, including this idea that the government would, you know, take this publicly owned land and turn it back over to private landowners. I mean, from your perspective specifically, given that, you know, you and and this vast group of stakeholders that you just described, you know, put so much effort into, you know, drafting this new plan for management of the area um, and you know, reach this unprecedented consensus um, as far as what the approach should be. Um, I mean, uh, what does this mean to you personally? Like, what was the first thing you thought when you heard this news about what's going on there now?
1: Uh, You know, my first response was anger. And my second response was was sadness Um, because, you know, again, this sort of self-styled militia uh, that has come to Oregon from out of state. Uh, is serving really nobody's interest but their own. And they come up with a variety of flimsy pretexts for why they're there. You know, first it was to uh, defend uh, somebody that had been convicted of arson, uh, a case involving both arson and poaching. Uh, that person did not request their help, did not endorse their help. Uh, the community has not requested or endorsed their help. The sheriff has told them to go home. Um, so, you know, they came in uh, under this pretext, they then uh, suggested that uh, it's about public lands and returning public lands to uh, the people. Uh, interestingly, uh, when they talk about the people, they're talking about the ranchers, not the original first people of the uh, area, the Paiutes. Uh, if they were really concerned about that, it would be the Paiutes they would be talking about. But, but uh, their agenda is basically to privatize uh, public lands. And again, you know, their arguments are just not substantive. Uh, They make constitutional arguments that the Supreme Court has rejected over and over and over again. Uh, Public lands are a very important part of this country, uh, something that the vast majority of the public support and hold very dear, Um, and it's incredibly important. These lands, remember, were protected in the first place because of the way they were being exploited. And destroyed, and how that public trust was being undermined, uh, so uh, you know that argument really is very weak uh, when all else fails, they fall back on uh, justifying their actions based on the will of God, um, which ought to uh, concern anybody out there um, that they would uh presume to uh, uh, base their actions on on god's will, um, how arrogant but you know what made me so sad is that uh, they had picked out this place where we're actually moving forward and moving forward together Uh, and uh, the danger there is that people come to view this as a a flashpoint for controversy when it actually should be viewed as an opportunity for collaboration and that's where we're trying to steer the discussion back toward at least get it into the discussion uh, that uh, this is an incredibly important opportunity and we need to redouble our efforts, re, you know, really nurture this opportunity and make sure it goes forward. Now, all the more so uh, because it is fragile and it is vulnerable, and the stakes are high.
0: I, I am also curious to know, just like you know, what. Direct impact this occupation is having, I mean are there active studies that are being that have been halted um, as a result of this occupation? I mean are people still able to you know are refuge managers still able to to get into the refuge i mean this occupation is only occurring in you know a very small part of a very large refuge
1: you know i 'm not there, and i don 't know exactly what the refuge staff will be working on this time of year, uh, so I want to be careful not to um uh, comment on something that I don't have firsthand knowledge about, but what I can say is this. um, We are acutely aware that the refuge is under-resourced, does not have the staff, does not have the funding to achieve the things that it needs to achieve. Um, And the stakeholders from this uh, CCP process have spent a tremendous amount of time, even though the plan was adopted in 2013, we have continued to meet regularly, we've continued to work together. We have continued to support this effort. Uh, We've been writing grants together to get funding in. Some of us are even investing our own money to augment the refuge staff. For example, Portland Audubon Society contributes close to $20,000 a year to pay for somebody to go out there and assist with bird surveys uh, because the refuge does not have the staff or funding to do it itself. So we're actually spending our own money uh, to help implement this plan. And many others are contributing similarly in other ways. So, you know, we're all acutely aware of the fact that there are nowhere near enough resources to do what we need to do. And even with these contributions, we're still not even close to where we want to be. So when I look at something like this, uh, the first impact is simply that it is taking the refuge staff and time and resources away from the work they should be doing right now. Uh, And that's going to undermine their ability to do their work uh, throughout the year. Um, they are over over overstretched already and every day, every week, every month, however long this stretches out, that they're not able to be there doing the things that are the priorities, uh, is lost resource. And, uh, so that's number one. Um, no one should think that, uh, just because it's winter, just because the refuge is relatively quiet, just because the bird life there is, uh, lower than at other times a year, that important work isn't getting done. And uh, essential work isn't getting done. Um, <coughs> number two, you know, I think is more of the existential threat, which is um uh, I think sowing discord, shifting the focus to uh, uh, whether uh, the, the refuge should exist at all, having a situation where people uh, are are repelled move away from the refuge rather than move toward it. and I think that would be the real tragedy if it create a situation where. Uh, when you try to garner support or engagement or involvement, people go, "Oh mal here that's a place where uh, you know all this conflict is occurring, and there's all this divisiveness, and no one's supportive of it uh, because that's really not the truth. The truth is that this is uh, a real bright spot in a very conflicted landscape for collaboration and for uh consensus, and um, we need to take advantage of that so you know, I think, I, think, I think the threats are, 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 are real, um, but I'm also heartened by the fact that uh, the community is rejecting this, um, and the public is rejecting it, uh, and, you know, despite the pleas, people are not flowing into here to uh, help these uh, uh, criminals, and that's what they are, um, and I think they need to be treated that way. We want to see a safe and expeditious end to this occupation. Uh, but we want to see these guys prosecuted. You should not be able to walk into a public wildlife refuge armed, break in and take it over. Uh, there should be real consequences for that. You should not be able to threaten, uh, a, a community in the way that they are doing saying that if you try to remove us, we are prepared to die. We are prepared to fight. Um, there should be real consequences for that. These are public lands, uh, and they belong to us all, and what they are doing is flat-out criminal activity, and it needs to be prosecuted.
0: Could not agree uh, more with you on that point. You touched on uh, a, a point in there that that I think is important to address, um, which is the fact that you know the Audubon Society as a whole is focused on more than just studying and conserving bird populations, but also about finding avenues for people to get outdoors and to observe birds in their natural habitat. I mean, what does this occupation mean for birders and folks that would visit Malhauer National Wildlife Refuge, um, for recreation?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, this is the quiet time of year. It's winter. Uh, but there are birds there. There are waterfowl there and there, there's plenty to see. Um, uh, there are uh, swans there. You know, there's very cool wildlife. I, I love going out there this time of year. I love going out there. And I think any month of the year, it's a magical landscape. There's always something to see. It changes throughout the year, and so I'm more than happy to have a meeting out there in December or January and drive out there and uh, uh, go birding and just just experience this this incredible landscape and this incredible wildlife. Um, and others do, too. Of course, it gets more and more um, active with burgers as you get on in the spring, March, April, May, early June uh, is really peak. You know, so uh, again, you know, this is this is an appropriation of public land, public resources, public opportunities for a very narrow, selfish political agenda. Um, and it, what appears to be a very, very contrived political agenda. So, uh, you know, I know I know the birdie community is very unhappy about it. Uh, our, our primary concern, though, candidly, uh, is, is um, the issue of, of uh, protecting public lands and uh, making sure uh, that the refuge uh, can do the work it needs to do and that this collaboration uh, with these very important objectives stays together and is nurtured and funded. Uh, so those really are our, our first concerns. Um, In terms of access to the refuge, you know, we lead a lot of trips out there. We do a -a bird-a-thon out there every year. Um, We put an intern out there to do surveys. Um, We help out with the uh, monitoring protocols, developing those, and so on. Um, And so, you know, we intend fully to continue to provide uh, real opportunities to the public to engage with this refuge, and um, my expectation is we will Uh, dramatically increase those because I think there's a lot of interest and there's a very different story that needs to be told. Um, So one thing is people can go to Portland Audubon's website and on the front page now, uh, we have a little uh, link to, uh, you know, for people that want to experience Malhear, get involved with Malhear, uh, they can go there, sign up on a list uh, so they can get updates as soon as uh, this is over. uh, We'll be providing lots of opportunities to learn more and get involved uh, because that's important. Uh, It also helps support the local economy. The more people that go there, uh, spend their money, stay in hotels, eat at restaurants, buy their supplies, uh, the more it helps uh, Harney County and Burns, which is an incredibly hard hit place economically. Uh, So that's important too.
0: What are the conservation efforts that that are sort of ongoing there? So let's jump into this and and, and talk about what those objectives are and and how you guys will move forward. Uh So
1: when we started this this planning process I think everybody expected that the primary focus was going to be cows on the refuge you know this sort of uh, hot button issue across uh, the rangeland of the western United States and I thought I think everybody thought that was going to dominate and that probably was going to implode the process we went out there for a week all the stakeholders went out there and they toured us around on a bus and showed us the refuge and all the different challenges and opportunities and Uh, You know, really just tried to get everybody on the same page from the start. And one of the things that kept coming up but was never sort of directly addressed was the fact that Malheur Lake was dying. Uh, This huge lake, very shallow lake uh, that had been so prolific for duck production uh, was literally dying. And that was influencing everything on the refuge. They were managing other areas for duck production that should have been managed for other things. Uh, Sort of the entire focus of the refuge was being sort of, manipulated in order to compensate for the fact that Malheur Lake was no longer functioning uh, the way it should. And yet Malheur Lake had not been identified as a priority, you know, sort of a preliminary priority for addressing, uh, in part because everybody thought it was too complicated and too hopeless and why even bother going there. As the week progressed, many of us increasingly came to what I think was a fairly obvious conclusion that we had to address the lake. Um, that it was such a big deal that really everything else paled in comparison. And the discussion slowly started to gravitate there. And I think refuge staff originally were very nervous because they didn't think uh, this was possible, but as they saw this group gaining momentum, this diverse group, all sort of um, moving toward the same point of, we need to talk about the lake. uh, They became willing to go there and excited about going there as well. That set a course that no one, I think, initially anticipated. Uh, maybe, maybe a few of the folks that were got together early, again, I wasn't one of them, uh, did hope that was going to happen, but, but no one you know, really expected it. Over the course of three years, I, I think we came to a couple of different priorities. Uh, one was, let's restore this lake. Let's find out how to do that. And they, they created some working groups. They brought in carp experts from all over the world, Uh, to figure out how to reduce the number of carp. Uh, I believe it's the highest density of carp ever measured anywhere in this lake and determine that there might be ways to actually do this. Uh, It would be the largest project of its kind ever undertaken, but it might actually be successful. There would need to be a lot of research, a lot of investment, Uh, but if successful, uh, it would be a monumental accomplishment. And we all agreed that that needed to be the number one priority. Uh, Second, uh, there was a recognition that the lands around the refuge, the private ranch lands uh, on the Sylvie's floodplain, which is just north of the refuge, for example, are also very, very important to birds and that the ranchers' practices uh, were helping the bird life as well and that that really needed to be acknowledged. And and many of the people around there were very proud of their contributions to the wildlife. Uh, And it was important to acknowledge that and also foster these traditional ranching activities that were helping birds um, and that were also threatened because of the changing uh, economics of the landscape. And so there was a commitment coming out of this uh, to acknowledge that and also promote things like uh, flood irrigation around the refuge on private lands, uh, which they need to do what they're doing uh, on their ranches and farms and the birds need as well. Uh, So that was the second thing that came out of this. With regards to cattle, which everyone expected to be sort of the uh, flashpoint, everybody kind of stood down, Uh, you know? And and from a conservation perspective, uh, cows are very, very important. It's a very big issue. They do have a significant impact on the landscape. There is absolutely reason to be concerned. Uh, But what we realized at Malheur specifically was uh, there were much bigger problems to address that would have much greater impact There was incremental progress that could be made on cattle that we could all agree upon. There was a need for more research because cattle do play a role in keeping some of the invasive species down there. And so we agreed to make some uh, improvements in terms of where they could go and protecting some very fragile areas. We agreed to an adaptive management strategy to look at uh, how things were working, where, where cattle management was effective, where it wasn't. Uh, where haying and grazing could be increased, where it could be decreased, and so on and so forth, uh, and to proceed forward uh, in that manner with cattle. What really was exciting to me was many of these plans uh, just gather dust on a shelf, but at Malheur, uh, people were already working on implementing this plan before it was even signed by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And we've continued very, very aggressively to work on things like uh, the fish management at Malheur Lake Uh, and raising money to support both on and off refuge activities for wildlife Uh, and in fact even um, some local economic development. One of the major strategies for the fish for the carp is to fish them out and they're working with local uh, community members to do that and turning those fish into fertilizer that are now being used on the ranches. Uh, So there's a lot of really cool innovative stuff being done there that's really never been done before.
0: Yeah, and it's really fantastic to hear about all these different layers of collaboration that are occurring as a part of this plan. And, you know, I think it brings up this this really important point. The worst thing that this... You know occupation of the refuge is doing is it's further polarizing these issues you know and I think there are perceptions on you know the extreme ends of this issue on both sides you know both environmentalists and you know this like extreme subset of ranchers who think that there is no way for the ranching community to collaborate and work closely with uh, environmentalists and conservationists and that's really not the case and if you really look at you know what's happening I think all across the western US I mean you see these collaborative relationships Relationships being established and you see biologists and conservationists recognizing that you know yeah there are some you know issues that have to be dealt with and there are some things to be concerned about um, when you're allowing grazing on um, on public lands but there are benefits too and there are many many avenues uh of of collaboration uh that you know benefit both parties mutually
1: yeah you know I mean I, I want to be careful here too though and I want to be I want to be very honest here i mean you know, I think there are real conflicts and real conflicts over um, over over grazing, and I don't want to undersell that and the impacts that, that cattle can have on 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 the environment, um, and they can be part of parcel of introducing invasive species and destroying um, riparian areas and uh, myriad other impacts, and, and those are very important things, and those are very difficult uh, things to solve. Uh, you know. We are involved in situations out in Eastern Oregon, out in Harney County, where we haven't been able to come to consensus. And Audubon, Portland Audubon is a group that collaborates wherever we can, uh, but also is willing to litigate when we think it's necessary. And so, uh, you know, we have both of those things going on. One of the things I love about this project, as I said, you know, I think it really is a true collaboration. I think we all uh, found ourselves in a very different place at the end of the process than where we began. Uh, not because we compromised our values or sacrificed our values or sacrificed our priorities, uh, because we learned a lot from the refuge, from each other. We discussed a lot of different things, and uh, we found out that uh, there, 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 there a different set of priorities made sense, uh, and uh, the, the biggest opportunities were things we actually agreed upon. And that's what a true... Collaborative consensus process should do. It shouldn't just paper over differences. It should uh, uh, either resolve them or help people find uh, different creative avenues to to make real progress. And, and I'm very proud of the fact we were able to do that. And uh, you're right. You know, I mean, I think I think the big danger is that people uh, take what's happening there. This very self-serving uh, occupation and think that's the true story I'm out here. And the reason we're doing media at all, that I'm doing this interview now, uh, is because we want to get that 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 story out there and say, you know, there's, other, there's another narrative that's much more accurate and honest than what uh, these folks are putting forward. But not to dismiss the fact that um, there are very big challenges on that landscape that we need to continue working on, uh, whether it's cattle on the range or... Um, uh development uh in important natural areas or uh protecting sage grouse you know another really uh uh important issue out there um, you know we still have lots and lots of challenges but let's n- nurture the places where we have found consensus
0: i mean one one of the key pieces here is the approach right i mean this group of you know this self-styled militia group um, that's occupying the refuge right now um, I mean, they could have had a seat at the table uh, during these this you know collaborative negotiation process, and they that's the way if they really wanted to have an impact on the way this area is managed, you know that was their opportunity to do it. So, yeah, I, you
1: know, I think it's. I mean, I mean, I think it's important though. Uh, the, these folks have never had anything to do with this refuge. I mean, they they, they just uh, they they saw an opportunity. I think they misread it, but they they thought they saw an opportunity, uh, and they and they dropped in out of the sky. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I know one of the complaints that people in Eastern Oregon have, have is that, you know, people from Portland drop in from the sky, too, and you know, from there <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think I think the reality is that uh, these public places, we we have an investment that goes down back more than a century here. Um, we have a long, long term relationship. We have had staff here and board members here that have worked there. I mean, there is there is a very direct long term very close relationship, and we spend a lot of time out there and a lot of resources out there, um, and uh, I think uh, our part of this place. Uh, I don't see uh, these uh, self-styled militia uh, having made any investment whatsoever. What I see them doing, you know, these are folks that have uh, run their cattle in Nevada on public lands, refused to pay for it, and aimed guns at federal officials. Uh, when they tried to get compensation for the impacts on public lands. Um, these are folks that saw an opportunity here and tried to exploit it. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you really care about this place, you really care about uh, Malheur and the issues there, uh, show up and participate in the public process. Don't show up with your guns and break into buildings and uh, demand uh, the outcomes that you want, uh, outcomes that frankly aren't even coherent. Um and they seem to change by the hour. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's just, I think, appropriately, they're not being taken very seriously in terms of their uh, their their concerns. And uh, I think it's appropriate, too, for uh, the community, and I'm proud of this community, you know, from from people on the left to people on the right, saying, look, there are certain things that if you do these things, you don't get a hearing, you just have to leave, you know? And maybe you leave and you go to jail. Uh, there are ways to get your point across. Uh, and I have no problem with uh, civil disobedience, but nonviolent, peaceful civil di- disobedience. And understand there may be consequences for that. Uh, breaking in with guns is completely
0: another thing. I, I think everyone is hoping for a swift and peaceful resolution to this occupation, um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share this important information, um, you know, on the conservation and the history of the refuge and this really uh, amazing, unprecedented collaborative effort that's that's gone into restoring the habitat of Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. I think that is, a, you know, that is a really important story that does need to be told. And hopefully we can uh, help shift the conversation um, a little bit towards, you know, talking about some of the po- some of the more positive aspects of what has been going on in the refuge.
1: Uh, Malheur is a very cool opportunity. It's also just a, a, a magical place. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, I mean, you go out there and uh, the wildlife is so incredible and the landscape is so incredible. And um, just a, a place that really does need to preserve, be preserved for future generations.
0: Well, thanks again, Bob, for uh, yeah, sharing all of this great information and sharing your perspective on, on what's happening out there in Malheur National Wildlife Refuge um, at the moment. It's been a great conversation.
1: Appreciate you having me on.
0: All right. That was our interview with Bob Salinger, Conservation Director for the Audubon Society of Portland. Bob touched on numerous important points in this interview that really haven't been getting the media coverage that they deserve. The fact that this refuge is actually a shining example of how collaborative management should work uh, in the refuge system shows just how out of touch with the local community this extremist group truly is. If they really cared about how this refuge land is managed, they would have showed up to one of the numerous public hearings that were held during this collaborative process to establish management goals. If you want to learn more about Portland Audubon and the organization's connection with Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, you can go to the show notes page for this episode at wildlensinc.org EOC53. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.